We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. It is time for another edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. Unfortunately, we are coming to you after a loss. Fortunately, there were a lot of very interesting things that happened into that game. A lot of narratives to pull from. A lot of thoughts to get. And I'm sure our listening base is is all over the place with their thoughts. And you are probably over the place with your thoughts. Do you feel good? Do you feel bad about this? Are you encouraged? Are you discouraged? What happened X's and O's wise? We're going to unpack all of that stuff in this episode. If you like the content on the show, please hit us up on Facebook. Give us a like. You can message us on Twitter or you can become a patron on Patreon like Chris Perales, a longtime patron who moved from a small dono to a large dono. And of course, we love donos. That's three donos. Now four donos, five donos. I can just keep saying it right per episode. If you're uh, drinking love, when James is saying that, slow down. The dono drinking game. That's a good one. And of course, our top supporter, as always, Alexander Leventhal. Maybe someday someone will beat him out. But for now, getting a lot of mileage out that. But if you love the show, head on to Patreon and become our supporter. We will give you some love on our next episode. Alan, take it away. James, this was an interesting game from a ton of perspectives. A lot of unexpected things happened during the game. But kind of what we talked about last week. I predicted 30-20. You were 23-17. I thought that Georgia would run away with it late which they did. So it kind of played out maybe in the most expected way fashion, even if the game internally had a lot of ups and downs. So let me ask, after this game, are you encouraged? Are you discouraged? How are you feeling here on Monday? I think I feel exactly how I thought I would feel. The game went more or less like I thought it would. Now, a lot of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, how could that be? We turned the ball over three times. We gifted them the game. We could have won this game. I like to view things on a probability curve, which we haven't talked about as much this year. If you've been a longtime listener of the show, you know how I like to view games. There was a large swatch of probability where this is how the game went. We've been very fortunate. We've been saying it all along. We've been very fortunate not to have turned the ball more or turned the ball over more earlier this season. And it happened to us here. And the Jordan Scarlett fumble is unfortunate. You can't really blame him for that. That happens. He rarely fumbles the ball. You can definitely have a lot of blame for Felipe Franks, and we'll talk about that. But that's just what you get with Felipe Franks. You're not going to get a guy that's not going to turn the ball over. He's done a nice job of that. But, Alan, the game played out like 
we more or less thought. I will say I was very encouraged by the fact that we started down 10 nothing, staring down what could have been a massive hole after getting obliterated last year and did the total opposite of packing in the 10. That's two games now in a row where we've been down, Vanderbilt, and then this one uh, on the road-ish, if you will, where we've come back to take the lead. And in this game, we did not hold on to win, but that's very encouraging. And I thought that the team overall, although we did not execute well at all, they stayed in it, they played hard, and they made it a game against a team that's more talented than them. So I think there's a lot to be encouraged about here. This is going to be a positive episode of the podcast, even if we're going to have plenty of things to nitpick. I think Dan Mullen continues to prove himself, Alan, as a coach that is getting this team prepared adequately, if not exceptionally well, for each game that we play. And he's managing what we say every week is a broken roster. And that, I think, is the bigger narrative for my storyline today. And we're going to talk a lot about the roster and how that really, I think, caused us a lot of problems in this game. I agree for the most part there. I was, of course, disappointed to see us lose. I mean, it was Georgia. You want to win. There's everything on the line. But I didn't think we were going to win. But the encouraging thing was I felt like we were in this game all the way through. I know there was a moment in the first quarter where it seemed like they maybe were going to run us out of the stadium. And they did that to last year's team. Like you said, that was a train wreck from the moment the game started and we were never back in it. Those guys stayed in. The defense played their guts out. That goal line stand was really memorable. Now it didn't end up in a win for us like LSU a couple years ago. But that shows me a lot about their heart and their effort and their willingness to, as Dan Mullen likes to call it, strain and kind of put forth the kind of effort that you need. Now, again, roster-wise, we weren't up to the task, but we led in the second half of that game. That was remarkable considering where we started out and how we began the game. So props to the guys. You know, Dan Mullen, I thought, did a great job. The coaching staff did a great job overall in, in keeping us in this game, getting us ready for this game. And it left me feeling better about the rest of the season, where we're headed overall. Now, this was a game of big moments. From the very beginning to about halfway through the third quarter, a lot of big moments. I'm going to talk about two. James, I'm going to do a few what-ifs. I feel like this is, this is a game of what-ifs. First play of the game for us on offense, of course, the flea flicker, flicker. It's open. It's a great call. Van Jefferson wide open. Felipe overthrows him by just a little bit. If we hit that play, and it's a touchdown, and we're playing from ahead from the beginning of the game, is this a different game? And correction, you mean he overthrows him by like a mile. Well, he another stride or two. <laughs> yes, it's a different game. It's fundamentally a different game. If you look at both Georgia and Florida, they came into the game on different levels. Georgia was struggling with their identity and confidence because they had just gotten, just gotten beaten soundly by LSU. And Florida, of course, is a continual struggle with sort of who are we, how good are we, how do we win. Even though we've done well, we certainly don't have some sort of top 10 football identity, right? We kind of knew that was the case coming into the game. If you hit that play, answering back Georgia's field goal with an immediate touchdown, and you have a young team, you've got an inexperienced or experienced but struggling mightily quarterback in Felipe Franks in big games like this, uh, you've got a team that's looking for something to believe in, I think that the fans as well have a different posture. It's like, this is different. But in a weird way, Alan, Franks misses that pass. And, and I think a lot of people like myself just think, yeah, that's that's Felipe Franks. That's still who we are. And that reinforces or doubles down on your belief that this team is still broken. 
that one play would have changed a lot, I think, a lot with how the mentality and how the game would have gone, what Georgia would have thought about Florida, how this year would have felt different. Uh, that's obviously not what happened. But it's a good question because not always is one play really going to change the outcome, especially in the beginning of a game. But in this game, I think you could you could play out one of those probability curves and say if you start like that and you're Florida, you 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 know you go on to a much different set of variants, if you will, with your expected outcome. The win rate goes up much higher. Your worst case scenario goes down much lower, um, uh, and you kind of get a narrower cone for where your outcomes are. I think that's very a very likely situation. Of course, we'll never know, but it does indicate how important those kind of plays are when you're a team like Florida is right now in its maturation and development, those kind of plays are everything in these, these close games, these, these sort of fighting for where we rank in the, in the sec, you know, hierarchy. Yeah. I don't know that I'll, I want to pin a game on one play, but you're right. The expectation for a win goes up. Well, one, you don't have a Jordan Scarlett fumble leading to a immediate touchdown, huge swing right there. Point wise and college football is a game of momentum. Now, just because you're doing well early doesn't mean you're always going to do well. Georgia moved down the field so well in that first drive and then didn't look like that again for the most part. We adjusted. So there's always adjustments. It's not like you score in the first drive, you're going to win. But I think it does change the complexion of the game. Georgia has to back up a little bit. The running lanes are even more open. I think it does play into that for, you know, like you said, the mentality of both sides and the tactical function for each coach moving forward. Okay, even bigger, what if? If C.J. Henderson plays this entire game, do we win this game? When C.J. Henderson went down, I looked at the guy sitting next to me, and I said, you know, the game the game is probably over. And then that's, that's like a big statement. In fact, there's this guy sitting in front of me with his friends, and he hasn't watched too many gay games a person, just a huge mountain of a man. And he turns around to me and he's like, Oh, how can you say that? You have no faith. You got to have belief. And it was like, I'm not, I'm not being negative. I'm just stating a fact that like, whatever the expectation was on defense, you better readjust it because this is going to be a problem right. for us. And it, and it was a huge problem. If you look at their third down conversion rate, which we're going to look at in detail, Alan, it's hard for me not to say that if we have CJ Henderson, this game is very different. It changed the entire way. We played defense. I mean, it was completely different when he was out of the game. We had to protect C.J. McWilliams. We played defensive uh, back-end coverages we normally do not play when we have Henderson. He is the best defender we have on the field, and he's gone. That you cannot, you cannot overstate the impact that has. So my gut tells me the way the game went with us taking the lead in the second half, 14-13, I think we probably win this game. I think we really probably do. I think we had figured out exactly what Georgia wanted to do on offense. We put them in a lot of third down and five, six, eight, nine, ten yard scenarios. We've been fantastic on the season with David Reese in the lineup on third and longs. And all of a sudden, this game we weren't. What's the difference? Georgia's offense is not prolific, especially not passing. What's the difference? The difference is you got you got a guy who's a sub SEC corner in there, and they're picking on him. And so I think for me, it's crazy to think could a cornerback change the outcome of the Florida Georgia game. But in this case, very realistically, Alan, yes. And and I, I know you're looking forward to chiming in on this because this goes back to what we said before the season started. Yes. We could not afford to lose corners, and now we've lost both of them. And I think it's fair to say that this one may have cost us the Georgia game. Agreed. Yeah, we talked about the beginning. This is the most perilous position on the team. I didn't think we could lose one. Now, uh, 
Dean has stepped up and played really well for a true freshman, like, you know, minimizing that loss to Marco Wilson. The gap between C.J. Henderson and the other C.J., McWilliams, is massive. One is an all-SEC, maybe all-American type player, and the other guy shouldn't see the field in that type of scenario against that type of competition, obviously, at this point in his development, or maybe ever. I don't know that George is able to make the kind of plays that they want to to win this game. They structured their game essentially when they needed a play, they knew where they were going. And it was almost easy. That killed us. Third and long should be a place where we destroy and we got destroyed. I really think if CJ Henderson plays in this game, we win. I don't know that we win 100% of the time, that there's too many variables. But I think our, much more than the flea flicker, our win expectancy goes up so, so much. That was massive in this game. And that shows you where the roster is at. And that's not something you. I think you can blame the coaches on. If they're just only two corners or maybe three with Dean, then that's all you got. And we'll see what they do moving forward if C.J. Henderson or trading goes out. What what can possibly be the solution? Because what they were doing this week wasn't. And that's unfortunate. Maybe it's just a thing that can't get fixed right now. But, man, that was a huge, huge moment in the game. And I would have loved to see us play this game basically straight up. Now, Georgia had some injuries too. But it's when you have that specific position where you're so thin. And Mullen talked about this in his presser. Your top line is so good. And the guys beneath them are so much further back that kind of contrast is almost everything. Okay, let's get into the game itself. We're going to talk offense, defense, special teams, coaching. Let's start with offense. Let's begin with where we were successful. James, what do we do well in this game? How do we score the points that we did? So we mentioned last week on the pod that the game plan had to incorporate vertical attack. And while we've done some of that in our previous games, uh, we, we had a more concerted effort to do it this game including opening the game with it. And I think this continues to show Dan Mullen's football IQ. Uh, And now I like to pat ourselves on the back and say each week, if you're listening to our podcast and you're watching the game and you're retaining a lot of what we're saying, you're getting like a really predictive inside scoop as to what's going on, Uh, which is fun. It's fun for me to watch that too. You know, we spent a lot of time railing on McIlwain and whatever we said kind of didn't matter. We continue to do things that were nonsensical, but in this game, you've got the opening play flea flicker, uh, you have a variety of ways we attacked vertically. We ran a lot of vertical routes, a lot more than I've seen on film previously. Uh, so we were definitely trying to stretch the field there. We were also immensely successful because our O-line had, I think, their best game of the season in this game. And we talked about that being the determining factor coming into this game is that we had to run the ball. And we ran the ball extremely well, extremely well. The numbers show that Georgia outrushed us, but that's very much a mirage. Most of that's picked up in the last six, seven minutes of the game. Up until then, we were handily beating them, not only in, in yards per carry, but also in total yards. And so I think that's, that's you can't say enough about the job John Hevesy's doing with that O-line group. They've really, really come along. And, and going up against Georgia, who is not a good defensive front seven, it's weird to say that with how much talent they have in the bullpen. They're not that good. We were able to exert, I think, our dominance there. And then lastly, as far as the game plan went, I thought Mullen showed a really astute understanding of of slowing the game down. Georgia goes up 10-0. We make it 10-7. 
then we take almost the entire second half of the clock, time of possession-wise, really slows the game down, puts us into the game. Mullen knows we don't want to give Georgia 75 or 80 snaps of the ball in a game like this. He knows we have inferior talent, and especially when C.J. Henderson went down, he knew we had to protect the defense. And I think a lot of that game planning and play calling went there, Alan. So all in all, I thought we were we were pretty successful with what we tried to do on paper. The problem that we're going to talk about here in a second is that what we had on paper did not translate into what went down on the field. Agreed. And we ran the ball well enough to win this game. We talked about can we run effectively enough? Can we stop Georgia from running? I think for the most part, I would say yes to win the game. Now, we weren't dominant on either of those fronts, like enough where we're going to blow somebody out. Georgia's too good for that. But we ran the ball well. Something that David Wunderlich, who's a writer, pointed out um, that LSU was doing to them and other people have done to Georgia was pulling two offensive linemen or an offensive lineman and a tight end to spring people in the running game. We did that a lot. A ton of our run plays, um, you saw two pulling linemen, one of them being Tyler Jordan frequently, and he's gotten pretty good at that. I, you know, He's a limited guy in some phases of the game, but he does that really well. And the coaching staff utilizing him that way, I think, was excellent. So we ran the ball well. I thought, again, I agree, our strategy putting us into position to win, trying to limit some of the things that Georgia was doing by holding onto the ball, using some clock, not playing with tempo, which sometimes that can be really effective. And so I, from that point of view, yeah, I think I was encouraged as well that we were able to play to our strengths, take advantage of some things that Georgia was probably going to give us, but just wasn't enough. Um, but... As we do normally, Dan Mullen play calls us into some points. Where do you see that this week? So, unfortunately, this week we didn't get all the points we should have had. But right. right out of the bat, early on in the game, we have that fourth and one play call where we we kind of call aggressively on the 20-yard line. Right, could go for a field goal. It could make it 10-3. to three, But instead, we go for it. And rather than just running it, which we've been successful doing, we try to steal a touchdown here. Now, if you're at home thinking, hey, you've been running it so well, why not just pick this up? Because Dan Mullen recognizes that with Felipe Franks, it's incredibly difficult to score touchdowns if you're not like on the one-yard line. So until you get that first down, the odds of Franks getting in the end zone with six to eight more plays is actually pretty unlikely. And I think that's why you say this is a good opportunity when Georgia expects us to load up against the run to steal a touchdown. And I think that's an excellent recognition of, of how you're trying to get to probably points in the mid-20s to win this game. Play works very well. Clear holding call on Georgia where Stevens gets in the end zone on that play. Uh, and we wind up getting a, a large, you know, a, a large first down that leads us to a to a touchdown there. So that that's crucial. Obviously, Emory Jones throws a really nice play, a nice pass on the ball. Beautiful ball. You kind of expected once you saw him early in the game. At least we were talking about it in our seats that you expect him to throw a deep ball eventually. That's why they put him in there so early in the game was to show George him for a while and attempt to steal a touchdown with Emory, which we almost did. Right, that's a yard away or a pass interference away from. Being well, we had it. it executed. They had to smartly yeah, interfere. And so that that's really solid. And then, of course, you have the flea flicker. So there's three plays right there, all that would have been touchdowns. That's 21 points on play calling alone, which is incredible against a team like Georgia to basically play call your way into 21 points. Pretty great. Now, in this case, we didn't wind up getting points on any of those plays. They don't always work out. But that's high-level play calling. I also thought he should have knack for a good time for when to run, when not to run, what to do in these various situations, which he's shown all year long. So, Alan, the question I want to ask you is one posed by uh, original fan. I guess we call him the OG, Tyler Rummery. Uh, how do you view Mullen as a, as a play caller? Is he in your top 10, top five in the country? Where does he rank right now, given what you've seen this season for you? 
So this is, you know, a complicated question. So he's a head coach who's also a play caller. So it's almost a different category. But I would put him up there with Lincoln Riley, uh, some of the better guys that I've seen who you trust them to make inventive, original, smart, timely play calls. I, this has been the theme all the way through the year. We rarely run a play, rarely, rarely. And I can't even really think of any off the top of my head where I'm like, why did we do that? That was so dumb. It's just been fairly excellent. Now, it's not always optimal. Like, not every play is working great. Most of it, I think, is that's on execution or limitations from our roster, what we're able to functionally do on a down-to-down basis. But I don't know. I, without sorting through all the best play callers, I'm not thinking about you know the offensive coordinator of Western Kentucky or whatever like that. I think for the high-profile guys, who are especially who are head coach slash OC play caller, he's got to be up there for me. What about you? I think he's got to be top five, and I would not have said that before <clears throat> the year. I'll be the first to say that Dan Mullen has showed me something apart from Urban Meyer that I haven't seen before. We've always speculated when, when Urban was here, right? You can't look at Urban now. It's not, not an appropriate thing to look at. But when Urban was here, the, the age-old debate was, who's who's really pulling the trigger here? Why, why do we run the same 17 plays over and over and over again? Is that Dan Mullen? Is that ever Meyer? You know, I think for a long time I thought it was Dan Mullen. Then once Dan Mullen was gone and we had Steve Adazio and you saw the same stuff going on and Adazio wasn't good either, I thought maybe Urban Meyer's really behind this. Maybe Urban Meyer's uncomfortable with some of the more creative play calling. And I think that now seems to be true. Uh, of course, I still have my qualms about, you know, Mullen's preference for running quarterbacks and maybe his preference for not going downfield as often. But if you're going to talk about strictly a play caller and a knack for, like you mentioned, Alan, calling plays that make sense to where you continually watch the film and think, I understand why you made this play call every single time, is really excellent. That, that, that's a mastery of your craft. And uh, I, think it's, I think it's hard not to put him in the top five there. I'd have a hard time naming five other guys that could be better than him at this. Uh, certainly look at like Mike Leach. Uh, if you look at his success there with the air raid, how well they're doing this year, how well they're doing at Washington State School, it's very, very hard to win. But that's a system that's a little bit different than a play call. The interesting thing about Dan Mullen is he's a pure play caller. And again, some systems are very simple. You kind of get into a look and you take what the defense gives you and you kind of stay in that look. That's more of what the air raid does. But Mullen is relying on a lot of play design and, and timely knack for play calling, much like what Lincoln Riley will do at Oklahoma is a good example there. And I think because of that, you have to consider Dan Mullen as an elite play caller at this point in time. He's, he's absolutely proven that this season. It's the reason why we are ranked 13th in the country. And at the point we're at right now, I think is, is Dan Mullen's play calling has carried us, has carried, a, like we said, a rather broken roster with a broken quarterback to the point to where we are today. Okay, that's some of the goodness that was on display on Saturday. We also struggled in, in big parts. Um, obviously, the turnovers crucial. The fumble where it was on the field, seemingly disastrous from Franks, end up only being a field goal. Scarlett's fumble and then Franks' interception. Also, a big-time struggle on third down for us. Like, why did we struggle, especially on third down? Well, I think I think this game came down to the quarterback play. Uh, Jordan Scarlett's fumble, I'm going to give an entire pass on. Again, that, that's going to happen. If you play the game of football, you're going to fumble the ball. and You just can't hold on to it forever. It was a good run. It was unlucky. And he had a lot of great runs after that. He averaged seven yards a carry in this game. So he really had a, an excellent game running the football minus that fumble. I don't I don't blame him for that. 
Franks' two turnovers are inexplicable for a guy who's played as much as he's played. And here's the reason why. He has all day to throw. That's a second down pass with no pressure on that deep out route. He's got a check down that is wide Wide open. open. It's in his field of vision. That's going to get a first down. That's also in his field of vision. It's a very simple high-low route. You've You've got a deep out at about 15 yards, and you've got a little angle off on the running back. Easiest read you can make. It's a high school throw. It's a high school read. And he throws a cupcake ball to a corner who's waiting underneath his out route. I mean, just no reason to throw that football. Just absolutely none. A crucial pick. And then the fumble, he comes out of the end zone with one hand on the ball, Alan. You're running a safe play just to give yourself room. And he comes out with one hand trying to kind of guide the lineman with his left hand. Takes a, a awkward fall like Franks is prone to doing. And you wind up you wind up turning it over on the one-yard line. And, and these are things that, that you just shouldn't do. He's played like 20 games now, whatever number he's at. I don't know the exact number. He's played a lot of football games. And you can't be flipping with the ball in a game like that. And so then what happens on third down? Well, you can imagine Franks' confidence in this point in time. He's missed a flea flicker. He's missed some open throws. He's thrown the ball right into a dude on an out route. Uh, now third downs are high leverage downs. Georgia knows they're going to try to make us pass the football because we're struggling. It becomes that much harder to convert them. We did not actually have in this game, Alan, a lot of really adverse third downs. We had a lot of very makeable third down, third and four, third and five. Those are not horrible situations. We had very few like third and 12, third and 13. We did a good job giving ourselves an opportunity to pick them up. But I think it goes down to Frank's, as we said all along on this podcast, and you've heard us from the beginning. And if this frustrates you, hopefully it, it made more sense to you this weekend is we're coming here every week saying we look at the film on Frank's and what do we see, Alan? We see a guy who just hasn't made those kind of strides. He is what he is. And if he's hitting his first read and it's there, he's fine. And if he's not, he struggles. And at times he's prone to turning the ball over while running it. I mean, we've seen that time and time again. I don't know what else to say about our struggles other than to say I feel bad that Franks has to continue to be in the game because we don't have a better option. He's trying his hardest. I'm not trying to dog him as a human being. But he's hurting the team. And our offense struggled almost exclusively because of him. The offensive line played great. The receivers are open. The running backs, aside from Scarlett, played fantastic. Aside from his one fumble, they played an almost perfect game. So who do you have left to point the finger at? The quarterback. He's the guy executing the offense for you. And he's subpar. And, you know, we've won games in spite of that. But uh, it came back to bite us in this one. And it was, it was a huge, it was huge, huge stakes in this game. And we could have actually won this game and won the SEC East, which would have been a huge steal. And we didn't. And unfortunately, I think that largely falls on Frank's shoulders uh, for the offensive side of production. Yeah, you see like the throw that he makes to Freddie Swain for the touchdown. A bullet, perfectly timed, great throw. And even the ball in the flea flicker, it's largely a beautifully thrown ball. The right amount of air underneath it, if he throws it just slightly differently, it's going to catch... Uh, Jefferson and stride, you know, he's got some velocity on some of those out routes or, you know, quick throws, but yeah, just some of the mistakes, some of the mental mistakes. I, I wonder if that overthrow on the flea flicker is what caused him to put too much touch on that out route. Now, regardless, he shouldn't have thrown it to that guy at all, but it was a terrible throw, even with the choice. Like I said, the fumble was so brutal. Um, I don't know. We talk a, a lot about is he improving? I, I, again, I don't know that this was a major step back. Dan Mullen said that either. I, I don't know if this was like, oh, man, he was playing so good and he played so bad. This was in his range of playing. You know, 13 of 21, 105 yards. That's not good, right? That's 
a lot of those yards on like basically one play. And even when we picked up third downs, it has to be creative. Like that throw to, I believe, Jefferson or Grimes. No, it's the Cleveland, I believe. Or he makes a bunch of people miss and picks up a crucial third down. Or we're having to run QB draws to pick up third and long because they're not expecting it. it. It's one of those things where you would like to be in you know, second and eight and where you can drop back and, and hit somebody over the middle. And against a better team like Georgia, we're not always able to do that or even able to do that very often. So it is the limiting factor. We could have talked earlier about running back play, offensive line play, newness of scheme, all these types of things. I think all those things were potential factors. And right now we're just limited by Franks. Now, if the offensive line was better, would we be better? Certainly. If we had another year under our belt, would we be better? Certainly. But I think the the ceiling for him right now in his development caps us at about this. Now he could play better. He could hit that flea flicker. He could not fumble the ball. But this was still in the range of expectations for him. And that's unfortunate for where Florida wants to be. Um, right now and where it wants to be in the future. And I think you said the, the key words for Franks for this season. There's a range of outcomes he can hit and he can have. The ceiling for that range of outcomes that we've observed is not very high. It's not very high. We've never seen it put out there. He's got a strong arm. He could do these things. We don't have it. Which is precisely why you mentioned we try to steal all these third down plays with bubble screens and with quarterback runs. This game against Georgia, we had something we have not had in many years here at the University of Florida, and that is a lot of time to throw the football. It's been a long time since I've seen our quarterback stand in the pocket and potentially throw almost every pass, Allen, unharassed. True. That is that is what you dream of as a quarterback. And even in spite of that, we're still bubble screening at times we're still running the ball and that just goes to show you that Dan Mullen knows where Franks is and that's why Dan Mullen sits in the Monday presser and says I don't think he regressed because Mullen knows like we know this is who Franks is he's dealing with who Franks is and he's trying his best to keep the guy his head in the game because Mullen has to win games right he still has to win games you as a fan are going to feel better if we win 10 games this year than we win six games for me I don't think it really matters I'd be the first to say let's do something different and see if we can't find a better guy which brings me to this thought pattern Alan Emory Jones, the guy that we wrote off last week and said clearly buried him. so buried in the depth chart, the inside reports this guy's completely not getting it, comes out and plays not only before Justin Fields, who never even sees the field, which if we're doing a Georgia podcast is a very interesting topic, but he plays significant snaps at significant times. Were you impressed with what you saw from Emory Jones after we kind of just buried him out of the program? Yes and no. Now, I think the reason he played this week is because they're still planning on redshirting him. So that's why we haven't seen him. Now, that's a that's a legitimate reason not to play somebody because you're planning on redshirting him. But if he was an elite guy, he would have he would have pushed enough that he's going to see the field. And you just wouldn't redshirt him, even if you're using him situationally. Now, they have the bye week. Chance to put in some specific packages for him that he could run effectively. And he did that. He, I was surprised at that ball he threw. That was a better ball than I was expecting once I saw him, you know, back up and throw it. He ran the ball all right. Good. Not, you know what I would I rather see in some of those moments? Kadarius Tony. He's I think he's a better runner out of the Wildcat. Now what you get with Emory Jones is hopefully is a nice ball down the field that you can set up by actually running him instead of Tony. And then you see a play where a fairly simple 
option play, which for a guy who runs and has usually has the ball in his hands, that that pitch was going to be open. He waits too long, gets his hand chopped, and we almost lose the ball. So freshman moment, I don't know. He, it was good to see him out there and not being as, I guess, moonstruck as he was in the spring game or previous games where he looked like he could barely handle the ball. So I guess he's gotten better. Mullen was saying he's progressed. I don't know what that means. Um, I guess enough that they were willing to put him out there in the Georgia game. So I would say lightly impressed, maybe. I don't know if impressed. Lightly encouraged that he could actually get out there. What about you? Yeah, I was impressed, I suppose, because the report we get is that he's like way off the depth chart and he's not there. But impressed is a weird word to use. I think maybe the more important thing is Felipe Franks is, is the worst runner you could ever imagine in Dan Mullen's system. And that's maybe putting it as nicely as I can put it. There's other words I want to say. And Emory Jones comes in, who's really not a great runner, by the way. If you don't know a lot about Emory Jones, he's not hes not going to wow you with running. He's not Nick Fitzgerald. He's not Dak Prescott. Michael he's Vick. not Tim Tebow. He's not, he's not, yeah, he's not any of those kind of guys. He's just an average adequate runner. But he's 100 million gajillion times better than Franks. In fact, he averaged <laughs> like seven yards a carry. Yeah. And they knew he was going to run the ball. Because that's available all the freaking time. But we cannot do it because Franks is so bad at running it, which continues to tamper the offense. So good there. You get a guy who can actually show you that when the O-line plays well, the quarterback can run. That's very dangerous. The deep ball throw was an excellent, excellent throw. Um, I liked that. Very simple high-low read. He had a guy in the flat that flared out and threw a go routes. Good ball. Good read. Right throw. Guy was open. Didn't force it. And then perhaps most importantly, and you mentioned this, Alan, I think when you talk about a guy being ready, he hasn't gotten as many reps in game against elite athletes, of course, as he would have if he were playing. But it shows you something that he sort of very lackadaisically, if you will, attacked that defensive end as though he was in high school. As though that guy was some six foot one, 200 pound guy that's just going to be in college somewhere playing intramurals and not a defensive end for Georgia that's coming down at him. Way late, way slow very much like I'll engage this DN like he's, you know, a little corner or something. And that's no offense to Emory. That's just an experience. And I think that's what you're hearing when you hear the reports of him being very far away from being able to run an offense is that may seem like such a small thing I'm nitpicking on, but it's really not. You have to keep in mind for two straight weeks, he probably only practiced four total plays, Alan. The bomb, the pitch, and the runs. That is it. He ran that option pitch a million times, I can assure you. And in the game, he waits forever. Doesn't make the pitch. Goes down, right? Now, again, this is no fault of Emory. He's a freshman. But what you said is the key. If you're thinking to yourself, oh, this is the time. This is Emory's time. We're redshirting because that's wise. We would not be redshirting Emory Jones if it wasn't for the fact that he's just significantly behind Felipe Franks. And if he's significantly behind Felipe Franks, you've got to ask where that leaves you. Now, again, he could make huge strides in the offseason. But that's the reality, Alan, that I think you said is entirely appropriate. Is don't kid yourself into thinking that right now, heading into the Missouri game, Mullen wouldn't play Emory Jones if he thought Emory Jones was as good as Franks because he would. He totally would. But clearly, he does not think he's there yet. And so what is Mullen saying as presser? He says, Emory's doing all the things we want him to do to learn to become a Gator, to be a program guy, which is a nice way of saying he's doing the things we're asking him. He's learning how to handle this business at this level. Not exactly a Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields or somewhere in the neighborhood. And it doesn't mean he won't become something like that. But Rex Grossman Allen famously beat out Brock Berlin as a dude no one ever heard of because he was better than Brock Berlin. He was better than Brock Berlin at every stage of his career. Because he was good. If you're good enough, you get on the field. And I think for Emory, that remains to be seen. Now the question I want to ask you, Alan, is Emory has two games left that he can play before he is redshirted, right? Two games left. If he plays a single snap in those games, I believe that would count as a game. 
What do you do with Emory Jones right now? What's your plan if you're Coach Mullen for the rest of the season for Emory? I think I'm going to play him in the Idaho game and the bowl game. It's hard to do much else than that unless you want to, I don't know. There's not a game on the schedule except for maybe FSU where you're like, we need to do something exotic here to win. So the rest of the games on the schedule don't provide this look. I actually loved that they brought him out there against Georgia. That was unexpected, I'm sure. It provided a wrinkle. And so, yeah, you had the bye week, do it 100%. I'm sure they were thinking of that from the beginning of the year. That's why they haven't. you didn't see them against some of these other teams when the games were kind of close because they were saving them for this moment when they could kind of install that in the bye week. And I'll say this, there's a huge difference between being able to run a package of plays and being able to execute an offense. That's it. Just because he, even if he had done the pitch correctly, that doesn't necessarily tell you that he's able to facilitate all the functions of that offense or even just handle snaps, make handoffs, call out protections, whatever you want to do. So, it seems very apparent that they, they need to ice him. So I would play him against Idaho. I would play him a ton just to get him some reps, see what you got. Hopefully you're going to be up huge at half, get get Trask in there for you know a series, and then play Emory Jones in the second half and see what you do. Hopefully we're up by a million at halftime and you can do that. And then you leave the bowl game out there just as kind of enticement to keep going, keep you know staying engaged. Um, that's, I think, just a general – freshman red shirt kind of rule thing that I, I think that coaches will probably deploy. And then you're you're with Franks the rest of the way. And I think if you see Franks go down, you'll probably see Trask. Because I don't think that the coaches, at least from our vantage point, from our just reading what they're doing, how they're deploying people, that they think he's even more, anywhere close to ready. Yeah, and I think that's right. Mullen said in his presser today that, that Trask takes all of the second team reps. And so, therefore, Emory's not even getting reps. And he, he mentioned that. And I think that's what's great about Mullen is, is there's no secrecy. Anytime that you hear him describe why he's doing what he's doing, even if you may not agree with it, you think, yeah, that's a good line of logic. And I could see why you would use that as a tactic or a strategy. Well, no secrecy with certain things. We'll get to some of the secrecy well, later. Correct. Secrecy when it comes to other things. When it comes to what's going on in the field or why he's doing what he's doing with a strategy on offense or why he has a guy playing, he's pretty good about talking about what the rationale is. And I think that the second question I want to ask here, Alan, then, when you look into the future, if we know that Emory's not ready now and we know that Trask is taking all the second-team reps, next season, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but just give me your gut reaction. Next season, is there a path where Franks is not the starting quarterback? I know. We talked about this a little bit last week. And after watching Emory Jones with this new info, I got to say slightly more yes. That... My latest impression of him is that there is a version of this offense that we're running where he could do some stuff that Franks couldn't do. And maybe it's about equal. Maybe you're making trades like throws versus runs, and Dan Mullen just says, I'm going to go with the younger guy who can run, even though he's not a prolific runner. Um, so, yes, I would say the the percentage went from, like, Franks is going to be the starter, like, 90%, to maybe he's going to be the starter, like, 80 to 85%. So it's not a big change. It's it cracks that window slightly for me. Yeah, we're in such a weird spot with quarterback. I, I shudder to even think about it because I have a hard time finding a narrative where Franks is not the quarterback, at least for all of next season. Unless you is, think you know Jalen Jones is going to come in and light it up? Maybe. I, I don't know about him. I don't know. It seems his... unlikely because at some point in time, you invest so much in Franks 
and he becomes a guy you've seen so much of in the game. And Dan Mullen is not a risk-taking coach. I think that's a really important thing to factor in. It's one of the things I will continually talk about being a knock on the philosophy. But if your philosophy on offense is three to four yards of consistency, your offense in life is not to throw in a freshman quarterback if you've got a guy who's played a lot of games. Now, we'll see if that changes. Well, if that tends to match up, and therefore, I'm not so sure. If Franks is continually, if he's doing the same types of things halfway through next year, where he's throwing a duck on a high-low read, and he's fumbling on the one-yard line, is there a point where Dan just says, enough is enough? I, I, I can't watch these same mistakes over and over again. I have to do something different. You would think so, and we haven't gotten to that point yet. No. But, but it's just hard to imagine, like we said, reps are really important. And if Trask is getting your backup reps, Alan, who beats out Trask for the backup reps? I mean, you can play this domino game all game long. This is a very weird situation. I look into the future as a Florida football fan, and this will be covered a lot in the offseason, I think to myself. I just don't know where we go from here. It's very, very weird. We don't have a Trevor Lawrence or a Justin Fields coming in. Of course, we have some highly touted quarterback recruits coming in, but I don't know. I don't know what to say. Just keep your pulse on that one. It's going to be very, A lot can very happen. A lot can happen. All right, let's look at the defense. Very up and down game for them. They excelled in some areas. Ugh. Didn't excel in some other areas. How were we successful? Talk to me about the game plan. What did we deploy? Was it what you expected we would do? Well, if you listened last week, right, you got another great insight into exactly what our game plan was which was we expected Georgia to run the ball a lot. And they did that. They did. They came out of the game and they ran it eight of their first nine plays, I think is what they did. Uh, so no surprise there. We said they would. We were ready for that. They did move the ball down the field on us. We did come out in a regular 3-4 defense, then quickly switched to the four down lineman, which illustrates a problem we know we have, which is we don't have enough linebackers. Great. You learned that on this show. And then secondly, we dropped eight. On the first third down they had in the red zone, uh, we dropped eight. That's what we did. And we continued to do that for a little bit, obviously, until Henderson went out of the game and we dropped eight and got beat on a touchdown pass inexplicably when we have eight guys covering four guys and they score on a little rail route up the sideline. Uh, and then we kind of abandoned that strategy. But that was the game plan. And I think with Henderson, we had to abandon a lot of stuff. So all in all, what we saw on film was expected. The question then is, how are we successful? Well, after the first drive, we clamped down on the run. And for the large part, Georgia was actually very conservative very for conservative. a large, large portion of this game. And we controlled the clock in the second quarter almost entirely to where we did not give Georgia the ball. And so we were successful in keeping them in check, if you will. But if you were like me, you kind of felt like this is going to be dangerous because as soon as they have to throw, they're probably going to throw it to Jim McWilliams, and they did. So we were successful in a nutshell with an incredibly great goal line stand, which tells us something, Alan, that's been phenomenal this year. If we know you're running the ball, we're probably going to stop you. We've been fantastic in our heavier packages. Absolutely fantastic. If we can key on what you're doing, you're probably in trouble. That includes our pass rush. If we know you're going to pass, you're probably in trouble. We talked about in the pod that Georgia does a very good job of keeping you off balance with when they're going to run and pass. And they did that in this game. And for the most part, we really weren't fooled. Uh, I think where we where we struggled getting into the next segment of this and what's what's fairly obvious is on the personnel side, which we're going to talk about in a second, and then something I will give Georgia credit for is, is they don't often go up-tempo. But at the end of that first half, we punt the ball to them. They go with a personnel that looks like a running personnel. It looks like they're going to take this game into halftime or at least be conservative. And they don't. They come out throwing. We're totally not ready for it. Voshan Joseph is not covering 
Um, not Nada, at all who on that first killed play, us. and he gains 22 yards. Now, that's not Voshan Joseph's fault per se. They're keying on a run stop there. It's a good play by Georgia. Every play after that becomes a bit more questionable. They don't sub, so we can't sub, so we're stuck with the wrong defense out there, and we're stuck essentially with Voshan having to man Nada. Which he can't. Which is not ideal. He can't. We wouldn't want that to be the case, and so we just don't have the right person now. Now, could he do it? Potentially, yeah. He was kind of okay after that. I mean, it was five yards here, 10 yards here, whatever, but obviously Nada catches like four or five balls in a row. Not a good scenario for us. So we struggled to match their up-tempo personnel-wise. They got us a couple of times like that. It wasn't just that drive, Alan. That was pretty significant. And in all reality, we struggled, and this is the most important thing, we struggled on third down just drastically. Which was surprising. Drastically. We've been excellent since David Reese was back in the lineup. Georgia was 8 for 14 on third down. All of their touchdowns came on third down. Multiple of those were third down and 8 or longer. So a third and 13, a third and 9, both producing touchdowns. A third and 5, which got a touchdown. That's end of the game kind of stuff. But the place you would think our pass rush is going to get home and where Georgia didn't want to be. They they very much did not want to put themselves in that position. That's why they went so conservative. How do they beat us on those third and longs? And that's the important thing to look at. So the advantage they had is they were able to keep Nada. This is why he also got open, Alan. It's Nada was blocking almost the entire game because yeah, they were they worried were protecting. about their pass rush. So that last that last drive of the first half, not all the Suns are running routes, and we really weren't expecting it. That was good by them. In the second half, even then, they kept Nada in almost all the time. He was not running routes very often. So if you're wondering why are we not covering their tight end, well, you have to imagine playing defense like 14 times in a row and the guy never runs a route. All of a sudden, he's occasionally going to get you. And the reason... Uh, I think on third down that we really got in trouble is we knew that we needed to help drastically CJ McWilliams. We knew that we could not leave him one-on-one with anybody, which is a huge derivation from how we typically play defense. A lot of times Brad Stewart comes down in the box and he will play those crossing routes, those drag routes. He'll jump on the out routes from a tight end. We can be way more confusing. Voshan will go somewhere else. He will not just man cover the tight end. We could not do that because we kept a safety pinned to CJ McWilliams side to help him to basically eliminate any in-breaking route. So all he had to do was guard the sideline. Unfortunately for us, he, he could still couldn't just guard the sideline. So that fundamentally changed the way we were going to play defense, which allowed Georgia to feel comfortable. And maybe this is the most important thing. If you've ever played sports and you look at a matchup and you think to yourself, Alan, I like this matchup, you are already in a very good place. In Georgia, I think as soon as Henderson goes out, you're no longer looking at third and nine thinking, I have no idea where I'm going with this ball. I don't know what Florida's going to do. I don't know how they're going to blitz me. It's going to be confusing you now. I know exactly where I'm going. I'm throwing right at McWilliams every single time. That's an incredible security blanket to have. So they can be conservative and then know that they're going to pick it up. Know that they can pick it up, or at least if they don't pick it up, they have clarity with where they're going. And they know how we're helping. They know we're defending, and they know we're helping with the safety. They know we're not being as aggressive anymore. They know they can steal plays with personnel type stuff. They know they can tempo us and get us in bad situations. So. We immediately become reactive and not proactive, which is what Grantham likes to do and he does so well. So I think personnel explained those third down conversions. The routes Georgia ran were extremely basic on every single one. There was nothing tricky about it. There was nothing good about it. The most basic of routes that you could possibly imagine to take advantage of matchups that we had. Um, And ultimately, it really killed us in the game. I mean, if you look at our third down conversion rate versus their third down conversion rate, you can make that argument. That's really what decided the game. But let's talk specifically, Alan, about the personnel. Let's talk about the DBs. First of all, if you don't know why we're so low on DBs, why are we? Where are these guys at? Why don't we have 10 or 11 guys? Well, I think it it was a flaw in McElwain's recruiting. They tried to beef it up last year or two years ago. 
got some guys in, obviously. Um, but just previously, it wasn't. I mean, anytime you have so much staff turnover from Muschamp to McElwain, you're going to have flaws. One big problem, and we're missing Randy Russell because of the heart thing. Now he's probably more of a safety, although probably a pretty decent coverage safety from what it looked like. And then the Watkins kid who robbed somebody or beat up somebody or whatever it is he did. He was a top-tier recruit who was expected to basically kind of do what Trey Dean is doing. And so at least you have a guy who's talented back there. Edwards, who knows? He wasn't playing. He's not exactly been lighting it up. If McWilliams is getting snaps over him, that probably tells you something about where he's at, either buy-in to the program-wise or development-wise or talent-wise. The next guy up listed on the depth chart is Dre Massey, who is has been until a couple weeks ago a wide receiver. Um, I guess they didn't throw enough that the coaches were like, just literally put anybody else out there. Maybe one more pass would have like been the straw that broke the camel's back. Or maybe you think McWilliams will learn. No, he didn't learn. He got beat by the same throw like twice. Incredibly frustrating, I'm sure, for the defense, for every player to be so limited by that one spot. And you can't hide him over there. You can't hide him with, with the receivers that Georgia has, with the type of defense that we're trying to run, and to be able to stop their running game. Yeah, it was brutal. Um, and then, of course, no Brad Stewart, and we'll talk about that in a minute. That affects us in coverage, although Sean Davis played pretty well. Juwan Taylor continues to be a guy that I would prefer not to see out there. I don't know on that first touchdown pass, he probably should have been somewhere closer to that in terms of how they were protecting versus how many we were dropping. He was nowhere to be seen. Uh, just a bust all the way around there. And yeah, frustrating to watch our personnel in that one particular area mess with us so much. It's kind of like linebacker when David Reese is out. We're just not there roster-wise to be able to take one of our top guys out and the replacements are sub replacement level yeah we talked about corners and safeties and in this game our safeties also struggled on georgia's last and maybe most important touchdown of the game on third down and right. nine i believe it was it's just a simple it's a simple out route it's a 12 yard out route from the slot receiver and that's an easy pickup for the safety and steiner is late on the way, inside way wrong not a double move nothing special about that it's just it's just bad coverage. not a tricky play where they're throwing it to the wide receiver who throws it to somebody else yeah like a a play that when you're a safety, this is what you know you're supposed to do. Correct. Basic out route, take it. Nothing confusing. Two, the two other routes were actually like four or five yard routes. So for the safety, he's not even seeing a second route. He takes the deepest route. Struggled. Sean Davis played fantastic. He's going to be a bright spot for us. He played absolutely fantastic back there. Uh, I think we continue to see, need to see more of him. But you can imagine it would have been Sean Davis and Brad Stewart out there in a lot of those lineups. And Brad Stewart obviously really came on after we maligned him early on. He was really a strong safety for us in a lot Especially of Especially in the pass game, limited in the run defense. And very, yeah, but solid solid as a run stopper, at least coming in the box. We trusted him to come in the box more than we trusted anyone else. We were not bringing our safeties in nearly as aggressively in this game. That affected us. Personnel affected us. We talk about roster building a lot in the offseason. And one little fun note, talk about game theory here. Um, so Georgia knows that we're going to play C.J. McWilliams in press coverage. And if you're asking why don't we back C.J. McWilliams off, because we wanted to help him and we thought if we can get a bump or a jam on the Georgia receiver, that that eliminates a lot of routes he can run, and the safety can basically take away any in-breaking route. That's why you do that. It's not a bad strategy. Georgia wisely recognizes this, and when it was third down, they would back their receiver two yards off the line of scrimmage so that he could not be jammed by C.J. McWilliams, in which case he just ran right past him every single time. 
They knew it. They knew he could run past him whenever he wanted, which is why they were throwing it that way. And of course, you could argue that TJ was close to batting the ball down. He's kind of right there, but he never turns his head around, never really locating it. Even in the pass he knocks down, Allen probably should have been a pick. Fromm throws it right to him in the end zone when he knocks it down. So we don't want to pick on one guy. I view this as though it's not CJ McWilliams' fault he's out there. He just shouldn't be out there. It's not his fault. He's trying all he can do. This is a problem with McIlwain, the previous staff. We just don't have the bodies. Unfortunate to lose, like you mentioned, our best freshman corner. It'd be Dean and him out there. It'd be a different story. We don't have that right now. And that's going to lead into the Missouri game pretty significantly with CJ Henderson's health as to what we actually are capable of doing. And wrapping up this game, there's a couple of important things still to look at. Quick talk on special teams. Pretty solid for the most part. We did give up a couple of decent kickoff returns and one pretty solid punt return. Tony himself had a very nice kickoff return. Townsend was solid punting the ball. And of course, McPherson looks like an NFL kicker week yeah. in a week out. I mean, it's hard to argue. He's probably not the best kicker in the country. It's just no one really knows about him yet, but he's incredibly solid. And now for you, a lot of your favorite segment, my favorite segment is the coaching decisions corner, the coach's corner, if you will. We have a bunch of ones to look at in this game. It may not have been obvious to you, but there were lots of decisions that you could have made differently, or maybe you liked the decisions we made. So, Alan, Emory Jones comes in the game during the last minute or two of the first half. It is 10 to 7 at this point in time. He comes in and he leads us to a third down and one with about a minute left. That's when we run that option play and we don't get it. Do you like having Emory in at this point in the game? Not only do we have the ball, we're also going to get the ball to start the second half. Huge chance to change momentum. What are your thoughts here about this? It was ballsy. Um, I have to think that that was like a scheduled, like he's going to play a certain number of series in the first half. And they were like, you know what? We trust him to run this package of plays. And this is what we're going to run out there and do. They're equipped. They're ready. We have enough time to do it. Let's do it. it I would have worked. The option pitch was open. I don't hate it. Um, I When he brought him in, I was like, whoa, it's an interesting time to game to deploy this. But... I guess I guess you can criticize it because it didn't work, um, and then we left Georgia too much time, or maybe I, Georgia might have been just as well willing to kind of sit on the ball if we cover Nada on that first route and he picks up five rather than twenty five. Um, I don't hate it. Uh, I like if you're confident in your players, let them play. You know, don't play scared, play aggressive. So I'm fine with it. I think if you look at where our team is, this, like you said, decision can make perfect sense. You you don't look at Franks and think, wow, when Franks is in the game, we're just going to go down the field and score. And he was not playing well no. at that point in time either. You look at Emory and think, I've got a package of plays I like. I think that Georgia is potentially going to play the same defense they would play anyway. And we're going to run the ball. So we're probably going to run the clock out or be safe with it. All those things were true. That option pitch play is a completely and incredibly safe play. It wound up being very risky, but that is not a risky play when you're calling that on your play sheet. That's a very safe play. I don't have a problem with it because of who we are as a team. I think if you were doing this and you had a quarterback that was solid back there, yeah, that'd a lot be really of questions bad. to be raised. That's not the time you'd bring a freshman in. But I think what you mentioned was, you know, really, if you look at our offense, we're always trying to like steal plays with play calls anyway. I'm fine with that one. All right, Alan, I'll take the second one. You can carry me on from here. No timeout is called after Georgia, end of that first half, burns us with the big play from Nada. The second play is like a five-yard gain. Uh, in which they hit on Voshan, and Voshan's now clearly in man, and they're about the 50-yard line at that point in time. We had, I think, two timeouts remaining. We're clearly not going to get the ball back at this point in time, and Georgia is obviously being aggressive trying to score, and they're not subbing. Do you feel like we should have called a timeout there in order to make a change of personnel 
Or did you like the fact that we just let it roll basically until they got to the 10-yard line, at which point in time we then did call timeout and then get us up in? I think I would have called a timeout at that point. Now, it feels counterintuitive to do that because you're seemingly aiding the offense, giving them more time. The offense is the one who wants more time, and you're giving them a timeout. Now, if he does call a timeout there, people are going to like be upset. But I think, as you're hinting at, that probably was the right move. But do we have anybody that we feel like we could bring in that would change what we're doing? Maybe Kylan Johnson, something, if we feel like they're going to repeatedly throw. Maybe we just didn't think they were going to keep doing the Nada thing, and they just kept leveling us by doing it again and again, and we keep thinking that they're going to go away from that. So nice little gamesmanship by Georgia. Probably should call a timeout, but if we do, they probably go away from what they were doing. And I think that's what you want there. I think if your opponent, again, this is game theory, right? Your opponent's signaling to you, Alan, I want to stay in this personnel grouping. I like my matchups. I'm going to stick with this. Especially if they're tempoing so you can't sub. I think as a defense, when you have two timeouts to burn, you say to yourself, well, if you like this personnel matchup, then I'm going to call timeout and give you something different because I don't like that you like it. And I think that would have been the wise move there. Again, unconventional. We're not going to like jump on the drum here and say this is a horrible decision not to do it. But I think if you're getting to the highest levels of what we love here on this podcast, something like game theory, you would make that choice. You don't want your opponent to feel like they've got you in a situation they like. You want to stop that as soon as possible. Your timeouts are meaningless at that point in time, and they got out of bounds twice. So the clock's already stopped anyway. You're not really aiding them with the traditional clock stop situation. You're aiding yourself in trying to keep points off of the board. Okay, Dan Mullen got an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. This is the second week in a row or second game in a row that he's had some kind of emotional flare up on the sideline. How would you feel about this one? Was it any different for you than the Vanderbilt one? I loved it again. I love this Dan Mullen that gets really ticked off at the officials and, and stands up for his team, and then we wind up aiding him with an incredible eight, if you want to call it eight play, but seven play or whatever it was, stop on the goal line, which was one of the best Gator football moments that I've had in a long time. Right. It was it was fantastic. It was awesome. I was so jacked after that stop. And, uh, you know, I think Dan Mullen has a lot to do with that. I think the players see that he goes to bat for them. He's frustrated for what's going on. He doesn't like the call. And even if he thinks the call's right, doesn't matter. There's a time when you do that. And I think twice now he's utilized that very, very well. Right. You can be stupid and get your team a penalty in, like, a really bad situation where it gives another team a first down in an obvious situation. And that one, it moved the ball a quarter an inch forward. So it's meaningless yardage-wise. So if you're going to get a penalty, that's probably the best time to get a penalty um, in terms of like you know moving the ball forward. Yeah, I got to say, I, I don't have a problem with it at all. Because I, uh, I do think it's not a he can't control his emotions. That would be disconcerting to me. You have a you know, basketball coach who is just losing his mind at the referees. It's like, dude, you got to get yourself under control. If it's a guy who's like, you know what? I need to fire up my team. I need to make a stand here. It's kind of like a baseball manager may be getting thrown out by arguing with the umpire to get his team like up a little bit. I'm fine with that. Now, if this is something that continues to happen and it seems like it's a lack of control rather than more control, I have a problem with it. Okay. This is something that I know you were, I don't know, not upset about, but very suspicious of after we score, they have a unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. So we're going to be able to kick the ball closer. Now, there's just some things you can do. This You could just guarantee you're going to crush it out of the end zone, but McPherson does that anyway. You can squib it. Or, you know, an interesting rule used to be, let's kick it high 
and drop it on like the three yard line because we're closer. We can get it further and still drop in that angle. But of course, now you can fair catch it at any point in the field. Do you think how big a mistake was that? What do you think happened there? I think this was the, maybe the most interesting coaching corner topic we're going to look at today. And, and it's for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's clear they forgot that you can fair catch that ball. He or maybe chipped, they think Georgia didn't it, know it. Or maybe they just thought Georgia would mess it up. But he chips it to the right side to the non-return man trying to pin them deep. That would have been great before the fair catch rule. Not so great. Which means if that's the tactic you want to take, then you should squib the ball. Because you cannot fair catch a squib. In which case, your team can then accomplish kind of the same goal. A little bit riskier because one of the up men could catch it. But all in all, fine. I think the better move here was to kick an onside kick. So we're kicking from the 50. Assume we kick the onside kick and they get it at the 40. Kicking it out of bounds gives it to him at the 25 or out of the end zone. 25 versus 40, 15 yards of field position, right? Most importantly, though, and maybe inexplicably from Georgia's end, is Georgia was not ready for an onside kick. They were not ready. They had three guys, and they all backed up. We went to kick it, and we had our entire you know eight guys on that right side of the field, our unbalanced kick formation, where an onside kick there has like a 60% success rate. If you look at the stats, they calculate this stuff in the NFL and in college. It's a very high success rate if the team does not expect it's coming. So one, curious Georgia did not expect it. Two, we probably ought to done. We probably should have done it there. That's a good time to do it Agreed. and change momentum. But at the very least, Alan, I think what, what I want you to take away from this is whether or not you want to be aggressive with the onside kick. I don't think you'll see this coaching staff chip the ball in the air again like that. If they want to do it next time, you're going to see a squib. And I think they simply forgot. And we can give them a pass on that, but it is a big deal. Yeah. Because if you can give them the ball on the 10-yard line there, that's huge in a close game like that, as opposed to giving them the 25, where you don't take advantage of that unsportsman. Well, kicking it to an, a non-returner, maybe that he's not trained already. So good job for that Georgia guy being aware enough that he could field that and fair catch it. That's a new rule. He, that guy probably doesn't receive a lot of kicks. So maybe a little gamesmanship from them there. I, I don't think they forgot. Maybe they forgot. It's a, still a new rule. Who knows? And that's that's got to be the special teams guy. So maybe... He had a little bit of a mental error there. Okay, I want to ask you about Brad Stewart. The chatter on on the old World Wide Web, on the internets, was that Brad Stewart was going to be suspended. Somebody asked Dan Mullen this. They say, hey, is Brad Stewart suspended? He's like, why would you ask that? Or, or they ask, is he not playing? He's like, why wouldn't he play? Because the internet is saying that he's suspended. He's like, well, I make those decisions, not the internet. Great. Well, guess what? He doesn't play. There's no, I guess, official explanation in, handled internally, whatever that means. Seemingly code for he was suspended. How do you feel about Mullen being so cagey or obfuscating like what seems obvious even after the fact? I think after the fact, it's a little silly. I understand during the week that you don't want the opposing team to know maybe exactly what's going on. Coaches are always, you know, freakish about that. Covering their mouths when they're calling plays. And right. Yeah. And, you know, you're also probably frustrated that the media is always trying to pry into your business because part of you thinks like, hey, nobody right now is asking Apple what their VP of sales had a conversation with on their, you know, their VP of international whatever. Like, that's not a public conversation. Florida is not a public entity. It doesn't have to report. I mean, Florida is, but the football team is not a public entity. It doesn't have to report everything that goes on inside the locker room. So I understand the line of logic, like this is a family decision, I don't have to tell you about it. But I think like what you said, Alan, is the key, is when you're going to act like that, 
it puts people off in a way that it feels like I can't trust you. And I think Dan Mullen's trustworthy, but why not just say, hey, we hear Brad Stewart's going to be suspended on Saturday. Is he going to be out there? And maybe just say, wait and see. You know, that's a possibility of that. It's still true. Could be that way. You'll find that on Saturday. You're not lying that way. You're being upfront. You're being honest. You're basically telling them, hey, I don't want to talk about this with you. But I'm also not going to say, why wouldn't he? Which now looks like, well, because you suspended him and you knew it. (laughs) And it just seems kind of silly uh, to me. I think there's other ways to handle it. I'm not going to like hate him for it. I know why he does it. But it's one of those coach things where I think they like way overestimate how much anyone actually really cares about this stuff. And it makes more news because they don't just handle it in a more simple fashion. It's the old Bill Belichick. I'm here to talk about whatever team we're talking about. I'll answer no questions. And it's like, okay, well, you know, if that's the way it is, it is. But Dan Mullen, all in all, I think, Alan, both you and I agree, is, is a relatively great press conference giver. It just tends to be injuries and suspensions that he, he obviously does not want to talk about. will never want to discuss and will not discuss. We will not know. I don't think he's going to ever publish why Brad Stewart didn't play. And we, we may or may not see matter. We still don't know why C.C. Jefferson didn't play. No one knows. Never sure. came out. We're never going to know. So that's just the way he's going to handle things. We'll get used to it. Interesting decision on his point. I think it could be could be better. Okay, putting this game to bed, we have some final thoughts and some bright spots. I'm going to name a couple. You name a couple. For the two that I have, I'm going to name Sean Davis because it's a guy we talked about before the year. I thought Sean Davis played an absolutely fantastic game at safety. Made a fourth, made a third down and a crucial like third and two stop in the game. Made several big run stops and several two or three pass breakups. Was always in the right spot on coverage. I thought he was really acquitting himself nicely. And then I thought the O-line, something we talked about, uh, you know, time and time again, I thought they had their best game of the season. They, they gave us an excellent chance to win this football game. And I can't say enough about their improvement week to week. Uh, we need the quarterback position to improve with them. Unfortunately, so far, he stayed the same, and the O-line's gotten better. Yeah, as a guy we mentioned already, Trey Dean, for him to come in and play with as much confidence and swag as he is as a true freshman, I think that's awesome. And also, he's got the size necessary to stand up some of the beating. Now he's not playing perfectly. But the fact that he's not immediately getting picked on, even with C.J. Henderson on the other side, that they're not immediately like, this guy, true freshman. Usually, if you have to bring a true freshman in after you lose your you know, all-conference corner, that guy's going to get thrown out a ton. And he hasn't. You don't hear like his name called very much. And that's a good thing for a corner. And then we, we talked about P Ryan and um, Jordan Scarlett. They both ran the ball. Well, P Ryan, I think has impressed me with how he's caught the ball of the backfield. He didn't do it a lot this game, but just the fact that he's a threat back there. Uh, I want to see more of these two back sets with either some combination of Pierce, Scarlett, P Ryan. That's a strength of this team. Now it wasn't necessarily the best thing versus Georgia, but anytime we have both those guys on the field, I'm a fan of that. All right, some final thoughts. So with 10 minutes left in this game, we were only losing 23-17, the predicted score I had for the game, despite us having three turnovers, two of which were inside our own 10-yard line. Rather incredible, 10 minutes left, only down six. The question I want to ask you then, A, is it a correct narrative to assume that Dan Mullen and the staff significantly outcoached Kirby and the staff. I don't know if significantly is the right word. And we're going to get to this in a minute. Uh, I don't know that UGA has the the kind of talent to beat the doors off a team like us. Now they won by a decent amount. So that is a little bit more of a lopsided loss. But this game was close. Um, I think I'm tempted to say that Mullen and his crew 
performed better with the materials that they had. Now, maybe you can say they outcoached them. I don't know if it's that's so much the case, but I don't think it was lopsided the other way. They didn't get outcoached by Georgia, certainly. And if I'm if I ha- if pressed, I would say that maybe they won that battle, even though we lost the game. Yeah, it's safe to say that what we threw at Georgia was much more unexpected than what they threw at us. So you could look at it that way. Although Georgia has the more talented team. So they don't have to be as tricky. I think it's very important if you're out there and you're thinking, yeah, but look at all these great things we did. You have to understand that when you're the better team, you don't have to do those things. And you need to keep that in mind. That's very important. Don't delude yourself into thinking that the more creative team is the better coach team. Not always the case. It's a risk-reward component. All right, secondly, if Mullen has Fromm and Kirby Smart has Franks, who wins the game? Oh, I think Mullen. Not that Fromm fits... You know, his system, Franks might even be a better runner than Fromm in terms of speed and like top end speed and maybe, I don't know, acceleration, although Franks is so slow to accelerate. But Fromm is going to make some better decisions. Now, he had a bad week against LSU the, pre- the previous game. But you can see there, he knows what he's supposed to do and he can put the ball where it needs to be, um, especially if you give him time. And you can trust him to make some of those throws. Uh, he played well in this game. They didn't ask him to do a ton, a ton. But when they did ask him to do something, he he executed it. Yeah, 17-24, three touchdowns. Yes, he picked on C.J. McWilliams. But a lot of those balls were very well-thrown balls. And most importantly, it's hard to look at Fromm's tape and think he made bad decisions. And so for those of you that are out there wondering why Fromm is still playing over Justin Fields, it's because he's capable of making consistently good decisions and consistently good throws when the opportunities are there. Now you have to ask yourself, if you're a Georgia fan, can he reach the elite level that maybe Fields can? But I go back to saying it's very rare to have a true freshman be able to compete at that level. Now, Trevor Lawrence certainly looks like the real deal. But to be fair, most of the pure quarterback pundits had rated Trevor Lawrence well above Justin Fields when it came to like right now yeah, ready, ready to throw the football. Fields is a guy that's got a tremendously high ceiling. So keep that in mind. But regardless, uh, I think that I'm with you, Alan. If we switch the quarterbacks, I think this is a game that we win. This game was basically won and lost with the difference of the quarterback position, if you're going to make it simple. There's a lot of things that played into it, but that was the primary difference was execution at the quarterback position. Yeah, and it's not like you're we're asking to like sub in Baker Mayfield on our team and totally transform it. it, it a slight upgrade at quarterback was what we're saying Fromm was, or maybe more than slight, would be significant in this game. Okay, James, one more question here for you. You've been a big proponent of this UGA juggernaut that they're building another Death Star, you know, outside Alabama. Now that you've got to watch them up close in person, you've watched more film on them. Was this result in the cocktail party the fact that we're closer to UGA than we thought, or is maybe UGA not as good as we thought they were? A little bit of a mirage. This this seems to be a off year for them, and this is to me why they're absolutely building the Death Star. Is it's an off year for them, and they're seven and one, and they're ranked sixth right now. And they're not playing particularly great football, but they just beat us by 19 points. They've quote unquote mercy ruled everybody on their schedule except for a loss at LSU, which is forgivable. Bama does that too sometimes. They are not as impressive, of course, as they have been in the past. But again, to, to I think to like look at that and sort of like naysay that is foolish. That's very foolish. Don't don't convince yourself into thinking Georgia is just like luck or that's happening. And they have a 
boatload. And by boatload, I mean they have like 20-plus five-stars that will be on this roster next year. 20-plus. Yeah, the the majority of their talent is like below the – it's like the bottom of the iceberg. It's coming up. This is certainly a transition year for them. Um, It sucks for them last year that they had to play a true freshman at quarterback or otherwise they might have actually taken that national championship. Or if Saban doesn't put Tua in, they win because they were winning big. So – Man, it probably hurts if you're a Georgia fan because that last year was your window. Obviously, this is maybe a 2007 version of like if you're if you're tracking Kirby, year three you take a little bit of a step back. We took a bigger step back in Urban's third year. Um, but yes, I I don't know that this tells me that Georgia in the future is going to continue to be at the rate. I think they will continue to ascend unless something breaks down. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. And again, don't don't kid yourself into thinking that we competed with them. That means we're there. We're not there yet. We're not. But we should be better again level. next year too. Yeah, we're gonna get better. But right now, the question is: if they, if ask yourself this question: if Georgia keeps recruiting in the top three or four, and we recruit at the tenth spot, find a narrative where we're better than them. More often than not, it's hard to find. Well, you'd have to say that Mullen outcoaches them every enough. single year yeah. by a touchdown margin every year. That's Which is a big, possible. That's a big ask. We're gonna find out. Big ask. Either way, I'd like I'd like at least to have that be a discussion versus. Hey, we're you know not in the hemisphere. All right, Alan. Last piece. I was at the game. You were not this year, thanks to Baby Oksana. Yeah. Um, the crowd. And if you were here, feel free to give us feedback as well. But I had multiple friends at the game in different areas of the stadium, and afterwards, all of us had a discussion about what the crowd was like, both pregame and during the game and after the game. And we all thought that it was maybe the most flat this game has been, which is really weird because you had college game day, you have two top 10 teams. It's understandable that the Florida section is not coming into the game thinking we're a juggernaut. Also understandable that Georgia comes in licking their wounds a little bit or just thinking we're going to beat Florida. It's not that good. But the Florida fans in multiple stages of the game had to be like really coaxed by the players and the coaching staff to make noise, which I thought was unusual in the Florida Georgia experiences I've been to, which I've been to almost every game since the year 2000. The Florida fans are significantly louder than the Georgia fans, from what I can recall. And this was different, this game. But I just thought in general, it was a very weird atmosphere. I got barked at like once, which was <laughs> odd. That was very low. And after the game, even, it was kind of just like a thing. I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to say this. And I wanted to bring it up because it just felt maybe odd that a yeah. game that sort of was so nationally watched, it's the highest rated college football game this season on a Saturday. Uh, national media was all over it. It was such a hyped up thing, but being there in person, it felt like a very low stakes game. Very odd. Well, I would say even for me emotionally this week, it wasn't heightened. Now there's a lot else going on in my life, but you know, I, I don't think that there's, there were, there weren't a lot of stakes in this game, even though it felt like, you know, from a superficial glance that there was a lot on the line. Yeah. And maybe that Georgia's expected to win, but not crush us. And then you got Alabama looming. So we've already played this game where we like squeak out an East victory and then we get, you know, destroyed. Yeah, I don't know. There, there's not a lot of emotion around this game right now. I don't know if that's the last couple of years where you know, no one's season got destroyed um, by the other team. I, I remember thinking the last time this series was flat was as flat maybe it was 2007 and Georgia does the dog stomp, and then the next year, I wanted that win as much as I've wanted one in a long time in 2008. And didn't feel like, you know, we yeah, weirdly, not the sense of urgency that you would think in a top 10 matchup. Maybe because both teams knew it was a little bit of a mirage where they're at. And, you know, Georgia still has a chance to make the playoffs, so, you know, there's that. But 
Uh, if they play like they're, they play against us against Alabama, my expectation is they wouldn't be in the game for all that long. Um, I don't know. Yeah, weird. But maybe also as I reflect on it, not that surprising. Yeah, not that surprising. Maybe just in, indicative of something that we talked about last week, Alan, which was that we felt like there were a couple of elite teams and then everyone else could be shuffled in and out. Well, I bring you to our national game recap segment where seven, count them, seven teams shuffled, shuffled out yeah. of the poll this week. Seven new teams in. That is the most amount of new teams since 1989. So that tier system we mentioned is indeed correct. Uh, and it's sort of like maybe, you know, Georgia, I think, is at that next tier than we are, but they're not at the top tier. And then everyone else is really pretty much in the same little bubble. And we saw that by the results. One team that is clearly in the bottom rung, bottom, which brings us so much joy, are the Florida State Seminoles. They lose 59-10. to 10. They beat Wake Forest the week before. Maybe you think it's an 18-point spread. They'll kind of be competitive. Oh, no. Anything but. It was delicious, Alan. Willie Taggart, I mean, what are your thoughts? Like, just give me your candid thoughts here. Do Florida State fans truly recognize how bad this is for them? Well, if you watch the first quarter, they were in it. They were holding Clemson defensively. You know, they were doing some nice things. On offense, they didn't look as bad as they did against, like, Virginia Tech. But they quit in this game. There's no other reason. For as talented as they are and for as close as the game was at the beginning, they laid down. I mean, Taggart admitted as much by the end. So I think any game where they start behind, they're going to quit. That's just who they are um, right now. Um, and that's a long road back. We quit on McIlwain last year in the Georgia game because he was basically getting fired that day. We didn't have anything on the line. I understand that happens to college kids, but if you're quitting on your first year coach already against a team like Clemson, who's going to be a rival in your life, this isn't like you're just playing a rando team. That's, that's tough. And especially tough because the Florida state fan base is just no longer there anymore. There's virtually no support for this team. So we mentioned this before. It's very different than Florida is here. Well, did you see the, the meme going around of the guy shirtless reading a book on the top of the stadium? I did. He's a professor, and one of my friends actually knows him. <laughs> so they see the meme, and they're laughing. But, uh, but yeah, not to unnecessarily pick on Florida State, but also to, but also to necessarily, to pick, necessarily on pick on Florida yeah. State. Uh, and those of you that like Florida State and listen to this podcast because you're married to someone who went there, you Welcome. went there, and you listen. We're really happy you listen, but don't expect us to sugarcoat our dislike for Florida State. They are a most hated rival, and I wish nothing but losses upon them. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Iowa 24, Penn State 30. Very close game. Well fought back and forth. Iowa is probably better than people expect, uh, but they take the L here. Yeah, and I, I think this was a five-and-a-half point spread, and I was wanting to take Penn State, and I felt it be close. And, yeah, I, would, I just didn't think they had enough firepower. Trace McSorley continues to come through in big moments. Uh, I like him as a player a lot. I think he's going to, he's a fantastic college player. I wish Penn state was having a little bit more successful a season so that he can be in that Heisman conversation. We both picked this one, even though we really hadn't watched either team play, yeah. but Houston annihilates USF 57, 36 takes care of any thoughts that USF are there. And now the articles in the Texas papers are wondering whether Houston is the best team in the state of Texas. Fair question to ask. Texas is good. Texas A&M, as we're going to find out here in a second, takes an L. I don't know. Fair question to ask. Houston's not going to play any of those teams, so we're not going to know. But regardless, Houston is a good football team. Kentucky-Missouri, the the wildest game of the week. Or the most boring that, game of the week. That didn't have any scores in it until the end. Correct. Uh, just absolutely nuts. Kentucky had no business winning this football game. Absolutely none. Missouri was the better team almost the entire day. 
Kentucky gets a punt return for a touchdown with five minutes left. And then Missouri almost runs the clock out on them. Kentucky gets the ball back and drives 40 yards in 15 seconds to win this game after what I think is a pretty bogus pass interference call that allows them to even get in the first place. Either way, Kentucky survives. Probably most importantly here, Allen, Missouri didn't get but like maybe a couple of first downs in the entire second half. I think they went three and out almost every time in the the second half. Which is pretty remarkable. We're going to talk about how that happened. But Kentucky now, big matchup this week with Georgia. I mean, it's good for them that they get to roll into this matchup, matchup with Georgia with everything still on the line, on the table. I'm kind of glad they won. I don't expect them to challenge Georgia, but we'll see. You never know. Washington State 41, Stanford 38. This was truly the most wild game of the Yeah, game. yeah. I took Stanford in this game, and for a while it looked like that was going to be true. And then, man, if you haven't watched Minshew for Washington State, that guy can sling it. He's like a grad transfer from I don't even know where. And he's got an incredible mustache, <laughs> yes. which is absolutely fantastic. Legit. In that lead system, he knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, very prolific. It's really a shame that he's way out there in Washington because, like, the guys, you just watch one Washington State game. He's incredibly marketable. He's a really well-spoken guy. Everyone in the Coug fan base, like, sports the mustache. Like, it's really fun. It's something that's lost, I think, on a lot of and, college football fans, but it's extremely great. And they are now the Pac-12's best playoff hope. So and there you go. I would love for nothing more than to Mike Leach to make the playoffs. Be the guy's great. been a great football coach that kind of gets maligned. But now his system, the air raid system, has not only become prominent in college, but is prominent in the NFL. So he's getting his moment in the sun. Texas A&M, Jimbo Fisher, ranked opponent versus Mississippi State. Maybe my team, my adopted team, and Joe Moorhead. Joe Moorhead finding ways to get it done. I wonder what the Mississippi State fan base is starting to feel like with Joe Moorhead. But 28-13, Excellent win for Mississippi State. They're back in the rankings. Not the season they wanted, but it certainly looks like Joe Moore's figuring out what to do. AM, on the other hand, seems to have taken a step-by-step regression on offense with Kelly Kellen Mond after the Clemson game. Yeah. And they can't seem to get it right. The defensive line for Mississippi State gave him all kinds of problems. Uh Mond is not the quarterback that Jimbo would pick to run his offense. Uh, that's showing up in some significant moments. I was still surprised that Mississippi State was able to put up 28 points considering what they had done in previous weeks. So good win for them. I don't know this means too much for AM, but yeah, uh, interesting game, if not like the most compelling game, but a good win for Mississippi State. Yeah, good, good action going on in the SEC each week. Texas, 35. Oklahoma State 38. This one surprised me the most. Yeah. I keep thinking Tom Herman's turned the corner. Oklahoma State, this is not the year for them right now. It's a clear transition year. Yes, it's hard to win there. They go down by a million points, only to furiously come back and almost win the game, which culminates in another great Mike Gundy moment, a almost Tom Herman-Mike Gundy fight. Yeah. Which was also fantastic. I love, I, I love when Mike Herman lost his mind and Gundy was like, what up? Yeah. I mean, Herman just lost it. I don't even really know what was going, why he lost it. No. But either way, Texas, that's a huge loss for them. Knocks them out of anything that they really wanted they to were, accomplish. Yeah. They were, had their eyes on the playoffs quietly. Uh, something told me that Oklahoma State was going to win this game. I watched most of it. <laughs> There's a, Oklahoma State's quarterback is a, looks like a guy from the 80s the way he's got his sleeves on his jersey and the way he runs, he killed them on QB keepers, like on zone read QB keepers. Picked up the last first down of the game, scored a big touchdown. This guy doesn't look like he could run past me. I don't know. And he just kept killing him with that. Texas is going to watch that on tape and be like, what were we doing? 
Okay. A couple of SEC games to finish up the roundup. Only a few here. Vanderbilt 45, Arkansas 31. Arkansas might be the only team on planet Earth that could let Vanderbilt score 45 points yeah. in a game. No clue, honestly, how that happened. I, I don't know. Chad Morris, every time you think he's kind of turning like, oh, a little bit peaking up, maybe the, the season's going to go up. Oh, we got a loss to Vanderbilt. Tennessee 24, South Carolina 27. Good win for Muschamp or Tennessee? Maybe that's even more encouraging for them. I think if I'm a Tennessee fan, I'm, I'm encouraged right now. You weren't really excited with Jeremy Pruitt, but it's hard to deny that this team is not getting better every single week. If you're a South Carolina fan, I think you're right where Florida fans were with Muschamp. You're extremely frustrated. You feel like you're screwed for the future and that you really just aren't ever going to go anywhere good. Well, he wins just enough there to stay there. South Carolina, I think... You know, pre-Spurrier was like the definition of kind of a doormat. Never won anything significant. Spurrier maybe changed the expectations there. But Will Muschamp is still probably one of their more successful coaches ever at while being thoroughly mediocre. And if you can win Allen at Clemson, you have to ask, why can't you win at South Carolina? It's a fair question. You can. That's the question South Carolina fans are asking. That's true. And and they don't have the facilities Clemson has yet, but they also play in the SEC. So I think, like you mentioned, they went from, like, nobody wants to play here to a world where if Clemson can recruit, South Carolina could, in theory, yeah. do the same. Yeah, so I think if you're a South Carolina fan, and I was explaining this to someone the other day, if you have the right coach, you can win. You bring the right coach to the doormat, he's going to elevate them to solid. You get the right coach at a place that you can win big, he's going to win big. I think Spurs showed you can win big. I mean, Jadevian Clowney, big-time recruits, 11-win seasons. It, it can be done there. He showed it. And now Spurrier is also one of the greatest coaches of all time. So it's hard to find. You still pick up another Spurrier. So anyway, good luck to you, Gamecocks. All right, Missouri. Let's talk about them. We're playing them at 4 p.m., which is nice instead of noon. So good news for us Gator fans. They're 4-3. and three. Right, they are a seven and a half point underdog. It's kind of moved to six, so a little action on Missouri. If you remember last year, we lost forty to fourteen, got pants by them. Okay, Barry Odom in his third year, very up and down. Derek Dooley, first year offensive coordinator. I was highly skeptical of him. Jury's still out. He's had some good moments, some not good moments, like this past week. Ryan Walters, their first year as DC. Although Barry Odom has a big hand in that he's only 31 years old and he's been with Mizzou for a few years so maybe an up-and-coming guy maybe not they've got 16 returning starters that's a lot nine on defense nine on offense seven on defense they're 42nd in talent composite overall again as a reminder we're 12th they got no five stars we got two all right James you watch them you watch the Kentucky game what did you pick up about what they're trying to do on offense? How is it different from last year? That's that's the real question to ask is how is it different? Last year they had a lot of two-on-one route combos downfield, and that's what really made Drew Locke, I think, very special. And unfortunately for Drew Locke and Missouri, they don't do nearly as much of that under Derek Dooley. Derek Dooley has is is been around Coach Tennessee for a while. Of course, he was in the NFL most recently for five years with Dallas, and I, th- I think some of that's influenced him. It's a little bit more conservative, a little bit more straightforward. They still have a lot of guys catching a lot of passes. They certainly are still a pass-heavy team. Uh, the biggest difference, though, I think, Alan, is they commit to running the ball more this year, and they're actually a good running team. 
that's probably a little bit different than previous years. But most importantly, they do not run those two-on-one vertical routes nearly as much. So it's not, I think, sadly for them, like we mentioned, not nearly as vertical of an attack. And I think that's hurting them. I think they've lost some close games. They probably could have won had they been a little bit more aggressive downfield. Uh, part of that also maybe they faced some pretty good defenses this year. Kentucky was the best defense they faced. So Kentucky got driven up and down the field on in the first half by Missouri. Missouri moved the ball almost at will, scored in their first drive very easily, scored before half, uh, had a lot of success. Kentucky, like we do, plays a lot of 3-4 and sometimes some 4-3, and they play a lot of nickel, and they play a lot more zone than we play. We play a lot of man. In the second half, Kentucky almost exclusively played straight man-to-man defense the entire half. Basically tipping their cap to Missouri saying, I don't think we can stop your zone attack on offense. We're just going to hope that we can stop you with man. And boy, did they ever stop Missouri. Now, if you're a Florida fan, you're thinking, great, this is how we should defend them. This is our blueprint. We do not have the talent that Kentucky has, which sounds crazy because we have talent, but we do not have the linebacking talent. Kentucky has two NFL linebackers on their team, and they have an NFL safety. And so those guys can man up where we cannot afford to man up. So the question you have to ask yourself is, if they go four or five wide, can David Reese reliably man up on their slot receiver? Can Voshan Joseph man up on their other slot receiver? We only have six healthy DBs. So I think what's going to be very interesting with how we defend them this game is what kind of packages that we run. What I would look for in this game is a lot of Kylan Johnson. You didn't see him at all in the Georgia game. I expect him to get a lot more playing time this game. The trick here is Missouri will run the ball on you. So very interesting matchup this weekend for us. Uh, But Kentucky had a lot of success with man. Georgia got carved up playing a lot of zone. Georgia likes to play a lot more zone, and they got carved up. So I think it's very clear, zone defense, not good. That's good for us, which ultimately means, Alan, what's the status of TJ Henderson? That could be the biggest and most important question in this game with how we stop them. If we don't have him, we're going to have to be very creative with what we do on defense. If we do have them, we can line up and play man a lot more confidently, a lot more reliably. They are led by Drew Locke. They have three running backs that all run the ball and get a lot of touches, Roundtree, Crockett, and Batty. And then their tight end, whose name is nearly impossible to pronounce. Go for it. Uh, I'm going to do it. It's uh, it's Albert Oka Iabunami or Bunam, right? Good luck saying that. Look it up. It's way hard. It's like Oka Iabunam. Either way, he's really, really good. He's probably the best tight end in the SEC. And we have seen that we can struggle at times to stop tight ends. And they have two really good receivers. Uh, they're seniors, Emmanuel Hall and then Jonathan Johnson. They play five guys. They have a lot of freshmen who are good. They are a prolific offense in the standpoint of they are by far the most dynamic offense we've faced. That's why the CJ Henderson thing, I think Allen is going to loom so large for us stopping them this upcoming week. I don't know that we can win this game without CJ. Okay. Drew Locke gets a lot of mentions as maybe the best quarterback in the SEC. When you watch him, does that, you're like, yes, maybe, or no, that's overblown. I think that's potentially overblown, but I'll tell you why it is. He can make any throw. He's got a really strong arm, and he does not have the talent. So you heard us say that Missouri has the 42nd overall talent, right? Yet they're able to go up against Georgia and put up 30 points. They're able to move the ball on almost anybody. And that's exclusively because of Drew Locke. It's not like the system he's running over there is so great that he's just walking into it and scoring points. So I think he gets more credit than maybe some other guys would. 
Um, I think Ole Miss's quarterback, who's a little bit younger version of Drew Locke, is also really good. You look at a Tiamu or Tamu, he's super solid, like NFL-looking kind of guy. But mainly, when when you hear that, you're hearing it because he can make every throw. And there's not a lot of elite QBs in the SEC right now. Not yes, and the SEC quarterback level is way down. And if you look at a guy like Tua, who is obviously very, very smart, Tua does not have the arm that Drew Locke has. And so I think that's what the NFL guys really like about a guy like Drew Locke is he can make every single throw all over the field. And he seems to be, by all accounts, a intelligent quarterback. So he will be the best quarterback we face this season by far. Uh, and like I said, he's going to present a serious challenge to our, our defense that is not obviously in the best of health. We're thin at linebacker. We're obviously super thin at corner. And we have safeties that we know got torched last year in those vertical two-on-one passing games. Thankfully for us, Josh Heupel is at UCF and he's not there anymore. So we should get a better situation there. Okay, let's talk about their defense. They have some stars, Terry Beckner, Therese Hall, Christian Holmes. But they've been really up and down for a defense, especially since their head coach has a defensive background. What are they trying to do? How successful are they? Yeah, Missouri's super weird because Barry Odom is very lucky he's had Drew Locke. There's no way he has a job if Drew Locke didn't happen to be there. Isn't Drew Locke a legacy yet? He's a legacy, yeah. 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 So he's just, it's it's luck for him. Otherwise, he'd have been run out of town last year. He's a defensive coach, and his defense has gotten much worse every single year, including really this one. So the staple under the under the previous regime was that they'd get tremendous pass rush with their defensive linemen. That's all but gone. This is not the same team. They cannot rush the passer. They do not generate interceptions. They're absolutely horrible against the pass. Now, they're adequate against the run. You could even say solid against the run, but they cannot stop the pass. That is precisely why they were beating Kentucky 14-3. to They can stop the run, can't stop the pass, while Kentucky can't pass at all. So it's a good matchup for them. Uh, they run a very straightforward and vanilla scheme. It's, it's, it's almost like what Randy Shannon would run. They're not confusing. They don't run a lot of exotic stuff. They don't even blitz you all that often. They pretty much rely on playing sound, solid defense, which works really well against a high school offense like Kentucky. This should be a very good matchup for Dan Mullen's play calling to mess with Missouri. It's a good matchup for that. What are you going to watch for this weekend? We are going to have to beat them with the pass. I do not see a scenario where you just line up and run on them like we did against Georgia, which sounds crazy to even talk about that. Yeah. But it's just true. We're not going to. They're a better run defense than Georgia. Uh, they've proven that time and time again. Georgia beat them with the pass. We are going to have to be competent passing I think you're going to need to see us throw it for more than 200 yards, which is not a lot, but that's going to be enough to be able to make sure that we're able to win this football game. And that may not be the easiest task because Frank's throwing for 200 plus yards is not an automatic, obviously. And so that's going to be interesting. So this matchup to me, and one of the reasons why, Alan, I've always been high on Missouri versus us, and we keep talking about I think Missouri is good, I think Missouri will give us trouble, is because of what you're hearing today. The matchups for them aren't quite favorable, and that's why you've seen the opening line be a touchdown and a point and a half a point move to six points. We're at home. That tells you Vegas basically thinks that on a neutral field, Missouri might be a three to three and a half point dog against us. And we're significantly more talented than them, which almost exclusively goes to the matchup game. Yeah, I think this is really interesting for us. It's a different kind of test. They're a different kind of team than an LSU or a Georgia or a Kentucky. We've we've built some we've played a lot of teams that want to attack you and be physical with you. That's not Missouri. They're more of a old school Big Twelve. No, old school. They used to be in the Big 12. The new school, Big 12, where they throw the ball a ton. Um, I'm really fascinated with this. I think that we're going to be able to throw the ball with some success. I am looking forward to a good game from Grimes and Josh Hammond and Swain. because I think they're going to try to take away Jefferson and do some things like that. 
I think we have enough depth at the wide receiver spot that we'll be able to do some damage. Penalties, we mentioned this because we're the worst still. Missouri's kind of in the middle. Injuries, none really to report. We've had a really great run of health, minus CJ being out last week. Now, as Mullen said, there's nothing structural seemingly involved with CJ, and they expect him to be able to go. All right, so from here forward, we're going to assume that C.J. Henderson plays and plays effectively. If he does not play, take everything we're saying about our defense and scrap it because it's going to change. The game probably looks a lot different. But we're going to move forward with our best information here on Monday afternoon as if he's playing. James, assuming C.J.'s in there, assuming we're as healthy as we seem to be, what are some keys to victory? The keys are are quite simple in this one. Can we stop their passing game? I think we've proven that we can stop any team's running game when Reese is in the game. That's that's a proven thing to me now. So that's not something we need to talk about. We can slow that down. We can stop that. Even if it's like Georgia where they move the ball, eventually we'll stop that. Can we stop their passing game? That's a, that's an unknown for us. And and can we pass the ball? Let's look at the matchups on our defensive side of the ball. Assuming CJ's healthy, like you mentioned, we're going to go CJ, Chauncey, Trey Dean. I think you and I feel very good about those three matchups. Chauncey has been absolutely a shutdown nickelback. You don't even hear his name called because no one tries him. That feels nice. Now, where do you go with the next two spots? This is the question you have to ask yourself. When they go five wide or they go four wide in a running back, you typically would have Voshan or Reese, typically Reese covering the running back. And then you're going to have Voshan guarding the tight end. And if you have Voshan guarding the tight end, you probably want Kylan, which means you put Kylan in. Kylan's not good at run stop or a blitzer. So that's where this game, I think, really hinges on, is getting down to the fourth and fifth matchups. And if Brad Stewart's playing, he's proven to be much better at coming downhill and covering guys like a tight end coming out of the field. If he's not there, do we employ Sean Davis in that role? I'm is not he so big sure. enough to cover he's large enough to cover a guy like that? I don't really know. And so that's where the matchups get very interesting for me, is that's how Missouri plays. They're going to spread you out, and they're going to take their matchup. Very, very interesting matchups across the board here. Not sure what to make about them. I can tell you that with CJ in the game, I feel comfortable. If you take CJ out of the game, I feel horrified. That's how much this hinges on his health. That's the matchup. In our passing game, I think this comes down to Dan Mullen's ability to get good first-look throws for Felipe Franks. Now, what we know is Missouri does not generate a lot of pressure, which means we should comfortably be able to generate some good first-look throws. I would expect us to be able to move the ball via the pass, given his limitations. So this game feels like why Vegas has us at a touchdown favorite. If you're looking at those two things, it does seem like it leans towards us. And I think Dan Mullen is absolutely a much better coach than Barry Odom and his staff. And that's going to factor into a game like this as well. So for me, it's passing on both sides of the ball. What are your keys to victory? Agreed pretty much there. I'm going to be interested to how we use our safeties as well. Do we go to a dime look and try to use some of our heavier safeties? So a Donovan Steiner, maybe a Juwan Taylor, although he's not very big. Do we use them as essentially another linebacker who's going to be able to cover? We tried to do this against Kentucky, and it went terribly. We haven't really gone back to it. This might be a game where you see it again. Is Jeremiah Moon a guy that you can use in either coverage or rushing the passer? Do we see more of him on the field? This is going to be an interesting thing for us. So I agree. It's like where I'm confident in those top three guys, like you said, are they able to expose us? Is their offensive line going to be a holdup? We did not get any kind of pressure against Georgia. Now they were doing a bigger, 
they weren't doing max protect, but they were doing bigger protection, and they were they knew that they could beat our one guy. Now I don't know that Missouri can do that, especially if we have CJ on the field. So can we get the kind of pressure we got? No turnover help against Georgia, and we've lived off turnovers. Being an aggressive defense, are we able to blitz? Are we able to confuse lock? I think we can. And I think for us, on offense, like you said, our, I mentioned this before, our wide receiver spots, especially those guys further down the line, can they make big plays? I think they can. Also, I think huge to this is the fact that we're at home. We do not play well at Missouri, seemingly ever, even when we win the game. This is a huge moment for us coming back home. How do we respond to a loss to Georgia? Do we pick it back up? Are we frustrated? Um, are, are we you know, kind of down in the dumps. I don't think we are. I'm expecting us to play well. Um, yeah. And I, hopefully being at home, we're going to cut down mistakes and some of those critical third and down and long kind of plays. If we can stay out of those, like throwing on first down, getting Felipe Franks and comfortable down a distance. We did a decent job of that in Georgia. We're gonna have to do that via the pass on first down. We're probably not going to, like you said, be able to run it. If we're running the ball all over them, the game is done. So like I said, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen, but if we can make some of those short throws, quick screens to Grimes, things like that, I think we'll be on our way to victory. James, are you ready for a prediction? I'm ready. I predicted us to lose this game before the season, All right. if you recall, to Missouri at home. I'm very tempted to predict it again, and the reason I'm not going to do it is because of how exceptional Dan Mullen has been at stealing points. And I think he's going to have to do it again in this game this week. Uh, this is not an opponent to be taken lightly. They can do a lot to expose us in this game. I think Dan Mullen gets us yet another W with his continued excellent management of this roster. The caveat here is we have played two games in a row, Alan, where we have obliterated our turnover ratio, which was once great, is now near the bottom quarter of the league. When I say the league, I mean the country. We had minus three last week, and at Vanderbilt, we had minus three or four as well. So that's two games in a row. We've had seven turnovers the wrong way. That cannot you gotta continue. got to clean that up for sure. Cannot continue. And Missouri is a team that is capable of putting you behind the eight ball with a hot start on offense. So a lot of interesting things here. I'm going to say the coaching is the X factor. From what I have seen out of this staff and being at home, I expect us to be able to get a win. I think this game will also be close. I'm going to take Florida 23 and Missouri 17. I'm going to go the same score I went last Ooh. week, but I'm going to flip it and say the Gators win in this one. Uh, and I think what I, I think will be a contested homecoming game. I'm right there with you. I want us to be able to put up 30-something points. If we do that, we win the game, I'm pretty sure. I don't know that we're going to get there. I'm going to go just under that, and I'm going to pick kind of an odd score here. I'm going to go 27 Gators, 18 Missouri Tigers. Um, I, I This is a game that we should win right now at our both respective states in the season. Feels like we should win this game. Mullen typically wins the games that he should win. Um, as long as the team is up for this game, and I think the fact that it's at 4 o'clock and not at noon helps us again. So hopefully all that kind of comes together. I also see a scenario where we could – you know, blow them out. If we're getting the kind of turnovers that we were previously getting, that would help a ton. If we're getting interceptions, fumbles, we're not turning the ball over. We could win comfortably. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. I think it's going to be pretty close throughout. 
Um, and I am nervous about this game. I don't feel super comfortable um, predicting this, but I will pre- predict a Gator victory. All right, so both of us have Gator wins. It should be interesting to see what the crowd environment and atmosphere is like coming off the Mullen Georgia challenged loss. them in his presser. He's like, we need Gator Nation to create the kind of atmosphere they did at LSU. I don't know if it's going to be like that, but we'll see. Do the fans show up? Are they excited? Are they helping create the kind of atmosphere that a home environment should be? It feels like, given this podcast, Alan, that both of us are more encouraged than we are discouraged by the Georgia performance that you would expect the fans that come to games anyway to still be excited about watching this team and rooting for this team. This does not feel like a, oh, the season is over or right. oh, we're doomed. If we lose this game, that's right where we'll be. So this is sort of a where are you at week and what will the rest of your season look like? This is a big win uh, for us if we can get it, and I think Mullen knows that. Let's walk through the upcoming games this weekend. There are several very, very good ones. Uh, we'll start with the less interesting ones, but Iowa, a ranked team on the road against Purdue. Purdue favored by three. Purdue with maybe the most electrifying college football player of all right now in their freshman who was denied entry to Ohio State. Who do you like here? This is interesting. Purdue didn't play very well this past week, you know, coming off a big win. I think that they're going to be able to outpace Iowa. Iowa tends to score in weird ways and not offensively. So I think Purdue is going to be able to put enough points on the board. I think that's reflected in this line from Vegas that they think that Iowa doesn't have the, the firepower to match up. Iowa much better at home than they are on the road. Two road games in a row. Tough loss last week. I think they have a hard time winning this one. I think Purdue comes back on a bounce-back emotional high. Notre Dame minus eight against Northwestern. Yeah, Big Ten West leading Northwestern. This is an intriguing game. Notre Dame just feels like they're too solid to get tripped up in this game. They've got everything in front of them. Eight points is interesting because... Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.